0: Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Condo Street Podcast. Kevin Canella here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, today I'm excited. We're going to talk through taxes. I know it's one of your favorite concepts, <laughs> your favorite policies, uh, but I think we have a lot to run through and, and specifically we're going to talk about the property tax and really why people seem to hate property taxes. Do you want to set us up a little bit more, Michael?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to a little bit. First of all, this is like totally in, in my lane. I like I like tax policy. I think it's really interesting it's underappreciated as an important part of policy decisions that governments make so you know i mean the the general question of paying taxes for public services i mean you know some people are like hey i'm really anti tax i want to i want to starve the beast and all that sort of stuff and and that, that that's fine so it's, it's a totally reasonable policy position and debate to have it's a little more nuanced to get into exactly how do you raise revenues to, to support public services. And I'm, I kind of like nerding out on that kind of stuff. And local governments are in the middle of that policy debate. And some things got us thinking about this. So, you know, I don't know, one thing led to another. I felt like we've got like a, a whole episode to talk through. I'm into it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, I saw a piece from the tax policy center, really good stuff always over there. And they're talking about the three kinds of taxes, And it really, it it got me thinking, and then it got us thinking, one thing (laughs) led to another. We got a number of ideas we're going to go through today, but again, it all leads toward why do people hate the property tax, Michael? So let's get into it. There are three types of taxes. We can start there. They say it's taxes on what you earn, what you buy, and what you have, right? Those are the three basic types of taxes that we're talking about here.
1: Right, and that that more or less, you know, sends you in the direction of income tax, sales tax, and property tax, but philosophically I'm not really sure I buy that these are three separate families I mean on a certain level um taxes on income are really just another sort of a sales type tax. They're a transaction tax in my view that that basically, as a wage earner, I decide to sell my labor to an employer in the same way that somebody else sells me a sandwich or a pair of shoes, right? So it's basically we both enter into a transaction. Someone's a supplier, someone's a demander, and, and so forth. I, I don't really see income and wages as being all that different from other sales. But, I mean, if you want to break it into three categories, that's fine. I think the real takeaway for our purposes today is that prop taxes on ownership, things like property taxes, are fundamentally different from other taxes.
0: Right, right. So, your your theory aside and to keep it simple, um let's just let's break it down into three and we'll talk about the first concept first and that is taxes at the transaction point. So, you love Subway, Michael, you talk about the Subway sandwich, you go into Subway, you buy your $5 <laughs> footlong, probably way more expensive now, but you pay a tax on that, right? And that's a tax on that transaction.
1: Right. So, so we're generally familiar with these and the, like the easiest to understand of these is uh, the state of Maryland has a six cents on the dollar uh, sales tax on most things that you buy at the register. It's added onto that transaction, and and you're exactly right. It's it's a it's a sales tax that's applied at the transaction point. So when I decide whether I want to buy that sandwich, I can decide whether the sales price by the company plus the tax that'll be imposed by the government is is the effective price that i'm contemplating whether it's worth it so i don't know I mean this gets into like individual decision making and and, and uh, outcome optimization kinds of stuff that that I got into back back in my former time as an economics professor, so that's fun times. Yeah.
0: Oh boy! I mean, can and, and for our listeners, I mean, can you imagine having Michael as your teacher? You walk in, and and here he is. He's cracking open the notebook. He's got his all of his books up there. He's ready to go. Big chalkboard, probably with all kinds of stuff. I I I, I can't imagine it, but I'm sure you were a good professor, Michael. Well,
1: <laughs> um, the funny things I I taught at uh, at Anaroma Community College, and, and I did teach economics courses, and uh I did have a fair number of students from relatively nearby four-year schools who were like home for the summer with parents and it seemed as though like the the word was out like just go ahead and take you know economics is going to be a difficult class if you're an art history major or something like that econ's going to be tough so just take it over the summer take it at the community college it'll be an easy a no problem right
0: (laughs) and when was it an easy a
1: Um, my course was probably not an easy A, but I I don't know if you were, if you, if you paid attention in my class, I think you came out with a lot. So I don't know. I like it.
0: Well, well, results (laughs) aside, maybe we'll go on RateMyProfessor.com and see if Michael's on there. (laughs) Probably is. Probably is. So anyway, anyway. All right. So surplus from a transaction is, is the ability to pay sits well with people generally, right? So you, you're going to the store, you understand what you're doing and you're buying a product and obviously you have the ability to pay for that and you can pay the tax for it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's the heart of what makes transaction-based taxes feel like they are reasonable. That, that people have the option whether to enter into a transaction. Um, and, like, there's this whole concept that you get into if you take an economics course about, like, consumer surplus and producer surplus. And I, I, I use pizza a lot as an, as an example in, in, in my coursework. Um, but, you know, the idea of the, the pizza maker, you know, dough and, and you know, flour and water and pizza sauce and cheese and toppings and so forth, relatively inexpensive. Um, so, like, the, the pizzeria might be willing to sell me that slice of pizza for just a dollar, for instance. Maybe that's all the cost that went into making one slice of pizza. So, they'd be willing to sell it to me for a dollar. Meanwhile, I'm really hungry and pizza sounds perfect and i'm super excited to get my slice of pizza and i'd be willing to pay maybe $5 to get my slice of pizza so if the if the price that they charge is $3 they come away saying that sucker paid 3 bucks and we would have sold it for one and i come away saying i would have been willing to pay 5 bucks they only charged me 3 each of us has we come away from that transaction with this concept of a surplus that we're both better off as a result of the transaction. Um, the idea of, well, if it's three dollars and eighteen cents in Maryland, I still go into that transaction saying I, I value that piece of pizza at five dollars three eighteen, still a good deal. I, I think that like it sits well with us intuitively, even if you've never taken an economics course, that concept makes sense. That you know at the time when you're reaching into your wallet is the time when you can Decide whether it's worth it and paying the tax at that time just gets baked in, so I don't think it's outrageous,
0: right, and I think we can probably get into incidents later on but but taxes do increase the cost of things, so they they do definitely distort the market in a way right michael
1: yeah so so in general, if you have a specific tax on one kind of product, something that we've gotten into before, things like excise taxes and, and that sort of thing, then maybe maybe it could be a policy goal to change that market. But in general, sure. Um, if go up, then people's demand for that product would come down. That's just econ one oh one. So whether you're talking about consumption of things subject to the sales tax, or if we're back to Income taxes as yet another transaction then then sure um yeah the idea of you're going to get this job and we will pay you twenty dollars per hour as as one prospect on its on its surface or it's twenty dollars per hour, but then of course the government's going to take a chunk of that, so what you're going to end up getting is more like fourteen dollars per hour that it distorts how many sandwiches people would buy or slices of pizza people would buy, or it also distorts. How many hours people would generally be willing to work and commit to labor as a result of, you know, the, the tax intrusion into what otherwise would be a free flowing market. So yeah, there's distortion there and it's reasonable tax policy to, to be aware of what the distortion would be, but you need to raise revenues in some fashion. And I think generally speaking, people find this to be a, an intuitively reasonable way to raise revenues.
0: OK, and that gets us its a perfect lead into to the, the second or the third, if you want to count it that way, approach here. And that's taxes on what you have. So we're talking about taxes on ownership rather than purchase, earning, transfer, realization. There's a disconnect here.
1: Right. So, I mean, basically, with, with everything we just said about trans, the sort of taxes that happen at the transaction point, here's the difference. There's no transaction. What we're talking about is the government levies some sort of assessment on you just because you own something that has particular value. So it's not because you bought it. It's not because you sold it at a gain, but just because you own the property, that triggers a tax. And nominally what we're talking about here are property taxes. There's a few few other you know, add-ons here, but that's the big entry in this category, property taxes.
0: Right, and that's certainly the, the outlier in your standard state and local tax system Again, just based on what you have, you have your standard property tax rates. And in the United States, it's it's mostly a local government thing, and it definitely accounts for the, the most revenues when it comes to taxes outside yeah. of, like, government aid, right? So it's a system that does well in raising revenue. It certainly uh, meets its goal there. But, again, you certainly have questions and you certainly have people who really don't like it because, again, this is much different than a transactional tax. You're just paying a tax because you happen to own something that you bought, by the way, Right,
1: right. Right. So, so it's, it's really lacking in that specific way. It depends where you are in, in, in Maryland. Most people pay property taxes on their residential property in two installments for some quirky policy reasons. But whether it's once a year or twice a year, um, at the time that the tax is due, there's not already an exchange of resources. There's not, not already a transaction that's happening at that time. It's basically just Okay, taxes are due again, come up with a payment. And so that's it's just a fundamentally different concept.
0: Right. And and it certainly does feel different. I mean, at least when you think about the property owner or the taxpayer, somebody having to stroke a check in a lot of instances, a big check rather than just paying sales tax at the register or, you know, your income that sort of gets taken out. You don't really see it. But to actually have to write a big check, Michael, that does feel a lot different.
1: Right. And I think I think, you know, the practicalities here are, are kind of worth mentioning, too. That does it does feel different to the extent that you're stroking a check once or twice a year for a large amount. You you feel that more than the extra, you know, than the extra 30 cents on your five dollar sub. Right. But there, there are things that offset that effect in practice. I mean, Most of us who who own a home and pay for it by use of a mortgage if you're still making payments to a mortgage servicer then you're you're almost certainly paying your property taxes in installments over time you put money into an escrow account and then your mortgage company would make your your mortgage pay or your tax payments for you on behalf so Effectively, we're not writing one big check, we're making installments, you know, monthly or whatnot to a mortgage servicer.
0: Right. So that that's true, at least until you've paid off your mortgage, which uh, that would be great. Right. So it does. It does have the effect of making this feel like a withholding, much like with, you know, with income taxes. As you earn your wages, it comes out of each check. So it does in that way um have the effect of sort of hiding that a little bit, and making it easier. Right. So it coming out of a escrow or having the mortgage company do it on your behalf, that does make things a bit easier, I guess. Right.
1: Yeah. So, so for tax administration, that is considered to be a best practice and sort of a user-friendly thing. I mean, it's kind of interesting in the history of sort of the political debates around tax administration. That there are some who actually really oppose the idea of income tax withholding out of each paycheck and things like, um, you know, allowing people to use escrow accounts and pay all year long toward their eventual property tax payments. Some people find that to be a bad practice because, it makes taxes easier to swallow like if you're if you're really really anti-tax you want to keep tax rates low you want to keep government really small maybe the idea of well people won't be as burdened or as harmed by the tax payment process if we if we do it this way rather than that way like no 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 i want maximum pain that way more people will join me in opposing taxes and tax rate increases and things like that so you know kind of an interesting side i guess in tax policy
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that. I guess I get that, but I, you know, at the end of the day, you, you can't win, I guess. It's like what Ben Franklin said about death and taxes, right? right. Uh, you're not going to win this debate no matter what side you're on.
1: Right. I, I, th- I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't exactly our Maryland local government thing exactly, but we've also seen sort of an interesting variation on this theme of taxes on wealth rather than taxes on income or, or on transactions. You know, the, the, the federal government's having various debates about revenue raising, as they as want to do, but there, there are some who have been arguing, you know, things like, well, we should have a special tax, you know, like a tax on billionaires, tax on people who possess some extraordinary amount of accumulated wealth. They ought to contribute some, you know, small fraction of that total wealth as a levy each year to help support public services. I don't know, I think the debate about that is is interesting and it's 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 got its own sort of fairness issues and so forth, but ultimately it's once again about a tax on what you have as opposed to the tax on the thing that you're buying or selling. And so it, it raises all these same sort of issues that that an incidence on something where there's no accompanying transaction is fundamentally different, and it just doesn't have that intuitive feel that like well you're you're the one who chose to get here.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So it's no shock that this always comes up as, as definitely the most hated tax, the property tax, especially like we said earlier, once it's less hidden, your mortgage is paid off, you don't have an escrow account, and that's mostly older taxpayers, right? So, and, and they're, they're actually very vocal and active, especially in Maryland. You see them in the General Assembly all the time. AARP has a big presence here. Older people, don't like taxes generally. I, I I see that a lot in the general assembly, and so do you. So, Michael, anything else here on property taxes? I, th- I think there are a few things that we should also get into here.
1: Well, we've kind of stumbled across it a little bit. Generally speaking, if you ask taxpayers which tax that you pay is the one that that angers you the most, you can reliably count on property taxes to win that fight. People dislike property taxes, not so much because they hate their local governments or they don't think the the taxes are being used well, but the tax administration on just ownership just sits poorly with people for better or for worse, and it leaves people kind of ticked off. But we've bumped up again against this other component of tax policy that I think is worth getting into, and that's like the incidence, the idea of can you measure fairness of taxes to the extent that they are they are a burden on people with different sort of capacity or ability to pay the we call it progressivity or regressivity
0: right right and so i think a lot of people will say that the property tax is the most regressive and you know you can understand that argument and and that would mean you know it does feel disproportionately on those with with the lowest ability to pay but michael most lower income people don't own own a home so so how does that ultimately show up
1: Right. So so this requires just a a little bit of thinking it through that. Ultimately, you can say that technically on this, you know, here's a 12 unit apartment building that's owned by a person or a company. Well, I mean, technically, the government gets a check. You know, they stroke a check once a year or twice a year to the government to pay for the property taxes. You want to think that through. It, who pays the tax? Is it mm-hmm. the person who strokes that check? Or is it really most sensibly thought of as the person who who feels the pain in the end? So if it's the latter, if that makes sense to you, that whoever really feels the pinch of that tax burden is really the one paying the tax, then you probably have to think about, well, if the landlord is basically passing taxes on to the tenant or the tenants, and that seems pretty plausible. I mean, I'm sure you can do economic studies on a PhD thesis and so forth on this question, but a pretty plausible notion that it's the tenants who ultimately really bear the burden of taxes on rental property. And if that's the case, there you go. There's your centerpiece argument that virtually everybody is paying money for where they live. And as a practical matter, then what share of your income is going toward that? Then, you know, then then you've got the regressivity argument that property taxes are relatively unfair by that grading.
0: Right. So essentially multiple parties can be affected by tax incidents. And you could make, I think, the same argument here, Michael, for for sales taxes. Right. Consumers might be the ones actually paying higher sales taxes. But at the same time, you know, retailers might feel the cost even more due to reduced sales, which can result in lower employee pay. Right. So you could really start to break this down when it comes to incidents. For all the categories of taxation, not just, you know, the property taxation, there are all kinds of things to think about. Even when you think about those transaction sales, like the sales tax and raising the sales tax, who does that really affect at the end of the day? That's what we talk about with incidents. And I think it's, it's a really interesting concept that policymakers have to take into account whenever they are considering tax policy.
1: Yeah. And, and so, so this is the kind of stuff that I really like when you think about a good, efficient, effective, and fair tax structure, you end up with these like puts and takes that there's nothing perfect, there's nothing popular, but you do need to accomplish goals. You need to provide resources. So so these things become an essential part of designing sort of a financial structure, a fiscal structure for any level of government. This is interesting stuff, I think, and, you know, hopefully – If you've listened this far through this podcast, hopefully you'll join us. This is kind of interesting stuff. I think so.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately with the property tax, Michael, I think the fairness of the property tax really depends on how you view the property tax or what kind of a tax you think it is. Because, you know, we know that the first goal of the property tax is to generate revenue for local governments to do the things that we do, like schools, roads, parks public safety. And again, it does that very, very well. But that's only one goal of tax policy. And that's what we've talked about here. We also want to have equity in the property tax. And that's where things get tricky, as we've discussed. I guess you, you could think of it as a, a tax on consumption. So that's your, your a tax on you living in a house. And if that's the case, then the tax is regressive because housing takes a bigger bite out of lower income household budgets. We get that. But if you think about the property tax as a tax on capital, your return to owning a house. That kind of a tax would be progressive on average, right, because capital owners tend to be wealthier. But also you could think about, well, places with higher than average property tax rates may see these higher taxes reflected in lower land prices or reduced wages, and that would dampen the progressivity a bit. But I really think that when you, you know, to add another layer to this, when you think about you know, regressivity and progressivity, you really have to first ask yourself, what kind of attacks do I think this is? And that can really change your viewpoint in terms of whether something is progressive, regressive, or relatively neutral, right?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think that logic is like you can you can analyze this stuff to the point where eventually it breaks down. But I think all of this is a, a weighty and important conversation for policymakers at every level to have, right? I mean, we, we spend a lot of time with both state-level policymakers. We appear before their committees and talk about things like this as we advocate for one bill versus another. But we also we work closely with county local government decision makers who are trying to balance their own budgets and support their own spending priorities and so forth. So all of this stuff, I think, plays a role in fiscal decision-making. You, you said you know, property taxes are really effective as a revenue-raising measure. And when you think it through, like this idea of, well, some people are going to vote with their feet. And if they don't like the tax rate in your county, they will pick up and move. And they'll move to Minnesota or Tennessee or Arizona or someplace else where maybe they like the mix of taxes and services better. Um, And, you know, there are all sorts of theories about when that happens and why and so forth. But When you tax a piece of real property, a plot of land or a permanent, you know, building or structure on the land, like that's still here, right? It's still in the county. That, that piece of property in Frederick County is still in Frederick County. If someone picks up and leaves and sells their home to go somewhere else, the new owner owns that property and the tax burden remains here in Frederick County. So when you said it's, it's an efficient way to raise revenues, it is kind of for that structural reason. There's like, and, you know, there's a there's a massive friction in, in where the taxpayers are located. These other issues with incidents and so forth are more complicated, you know, a more more of a judgment call and, you know, slippery slopes, I think. So all, all that is interesting. It's challenging. It's what makes tax policy interesting to me, I think.
0: Right. And, and and I agree with everything you said. And I think, you know, as we continue down this road of of property taxes and why people hate them so much, I think another uh, issue that some people have is uncertainty right and the property tax can fluctuate and it can expose homeowners to in their view too much uncertainty you know if you're if you're somewhere and a big a big box retail establishment closes its doors right and that was really the anchor of your community and also a big source of revenue maybe homeowners see their tax bills rise as the local government has to adjust and try to make up for that lost revenue caused by a reduction in the commercial tax base so michael i think one of the things that i've thought about and i've 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 read a lot about. Maybe maybe there is a way to alleviate some of that uncertainty. Have you thought about or what about taxing owners based on ranges or bands? Right. Rather than specific levels of property value. This is something that's used in the U.K. And I think the whole goal is to sort of make sure that a lot of that uncertainty gets eliminated because you won't have fluctuations. And, you know, with a reliance on a big business or a, a certain entity there that's generating a bunch of revenue if they pick up and leave certainly you're going to have ripple effects so if you what do you think about maybe taxing in ranges rather than breaking it down to the actual value do you think that could help to alleviate some uncertainty and again it's something that we're seeing uh in europe specifically in the uk it's something that they use i think pretty well
1: it's it's an interesting idea and it's not like it's a completely foreign concept right i mean Mm -hmm. that's what the overwhelming share of income tax structures in the United States, in state governments and so forth, are with brackets, right? The idea mm-hmm. of up to a certain amount you pay this rate, then after that after that amount you pay a higher rate, and after a certain amount you pay a higher rate. Federal government works that way. The Maryland state income tax works that way. For the most part, we already think of a lot of taxes that way. Like we don't we don't pay sales taxes that way. Like whether it doesn't matter who I am socioeconomically when I buy that slice of pizza, I pay the 18 cents just like everybody else. Um, I think the general logic there is that there's that's too much administrative burden to try mm-hmm. and do a calculation there that rich people should pay a higher sales tax than others. So you abandon that at the small ball level, but when you're talking about larger tax incidents. You weigh it based on ability to pay and some of that is embedded in the value of the property. But it's a, if it's a flat rate based on the value of the property, then you miss some of that. So in theory, you could have graduated rates based on values on different bands, whether it's based on people's income or whether it's based on just the value of the property. Um, in Maryland, I think that would require a constitutional amendment. Yes. If I'm remembering correctly, I think, I mean, I think we've run into this kind of stuff on legislature in the, in the in the state general assembly. Does that sound right to you? Yeah.
0: I think so. Yeah, I think it definitely would. And I'm not advocating for it. I just think as we drill down and try to figure out how to make people hate property taxes less, you know, I think one of the big issues is people often complain about uncertainty and we could get into the constant yield and what all that means. We're not going to do that today, but people see rates in their newspaper or whatever, or they think that rates are going up. That gets people riled up really fast. So I think that, you know, giving some people, uh, you know, just so- something to grab onto in terms of, hey, it's going to be stable. We're not going to have to deal with, with rate changes based on, uh, you know, one factor happening. So, you know, again, that target leaves the neighborhood and all of a sudden that the, the local government needs a ton of cash. They're going to have to do something, right? So the first thing people think is they're going to raise my, my property tax rates. And maybe this is a way to lessen that a little bit, but in Maryland, it's going to be more complicated. But anyway, I just think that's an interesting concept and one that I think a lot of people don't like the uncertainty or they feel like there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to property taxes. And yeah, that I does. Yeah. And, and that does bring us into Maryland tax policy, Michael. Um, you know, over the decades, Maryland has basically been pretty active in trying to limit property taxes and to use income taxes at a, as a tool to promote tax fairness and progressivity. And I think, Michael, is there's a strong case that Maryland's pressure to lessen property taxes by using income taxes is 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 wise in your opinion
1: I, I i think I think you could make that case right it was it's been It's been a long time since the cooper Hughes legislation you know decades and decades ago in Maryland, we basically had a major effort to say we don't want to become a state like nearby New Jersey that has property tax revolt all the time that's really heavily reliant on property taxes. As a major, major revenue source for all sorts of services and being wary of that sort of thing, Maryland said we think income taxes are generally the fairest and most efficient tax structure. And so unlike most states, um, we're going to try and reduce our reliance on to some degree of sales tax, but in particular, we want to really reduce the reliance on property taxes. We're going to give our counties an income tax for every county as a major workhorse revenue source. There's no other state that does that. So if you've only lived in Maryland, you've probably gotten used to, you know, some people still call it the piggyback tax, but a county income tax rate of 2.5% or 3% or something like that that you pay to your county government in Maryland, most states have nothing like that. Maybe one big city has its own special little income tax, but, for the most part, local governments don't have income taxes. Maryland is out of the ordinary in authorizing, actually requiring counties to do income taxes. That's been, let's do this system and take the burden off property taxes. I think on balance, that's, that's probably wise policy.
0: Yeah, and when we think about taking the burden off property tax and, you know, trying to to be better with progressivity, the recent legislation that MACO pushed very hard for and was pretty involved with, which allows counties to add brackets to our local income tax structure, can move us even further in that direction, Michael. So I think that's also a good point to make here, that we're trying to, to beef up that progressivity. Adding brackets is certainly a good way to do that.
1: Right. I think that's a good point. It's like sort of the latest salvo in this whole debate, big picture debate over what should be the priorities in in Maryland state and local revenue policy. Um, I mean, it's a good tool, except that we have, you know, I think the majority of Marylanders live in a county That's already up against the cap on its income tax that, you know, we were given this tool and basically there's a there's a ceiling and and most of the large counties are at that ceiling. So there's less flexibility there than meets the eye.
0: Right. So ultimately, I mean, the pressure on the property tax continues in that way, even though people hate it. And, And I guess for good reason. And and another thing, Michael, I think, look, I think all counties in Maryland are are trying to be better with transparency in every area, right? So we've seen this being, you know, a a big initiative everywhere in every single county. And I think one way to to maybe make things easier with the property tax is better transparency, explanations on how property bills are calculated, how homeowners can apply for property tax relief, and then explaining and showing people what these property taxes fund. I think all of that can help improve uh, the tax and increase its acceptability at the end of the day. And, you know, we're in budget season. You see counties releasing their budgets. And I mean, these budget books are massive, right? And they really do highlight all of the good things that that revenue goes toward and all the services it provides. And I think the more you can do that and the more you can help people understand, hey, these are really good things. Somebody has to pay for them. This is the way we need to do it. We also have other ways. We're trying to be more progressive, but ultimately showing people and making sure they understand. And then we've seen a big push for for people to 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 make sure that people understand the benefits that they're eligible for, right? Tax breaks that they're eligible for, making sure people know that they can apply for these things. There's also a big push there. So I think that makes sense. And ultimately, all of those things, I think, can maybe make people hate the property tax less, although they're still going to hate it no matter what. You're not going to win. But I think maybe some of that can help chip away at it.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's there's yet another balance involved in tax policy is the pursuit of making things – fair and adjustable and refined and precise tends to make things more and more complicated. And so when you get every three years, you get a piece of paper from the State Department of Assessments that said, we can't, you know, we've, we've, we've come out and we've come up with a new value for your property, that assessment notice is really hard to understand, in part because Maryland has a bunch of laws that try and blunt, you know, big changes in your tax incidents. And so that's that's meant to be customer friendly and taxpayer friendly, but then it makes it harder to understand. Same thing for our income tax form and potentially for all these various things you just mentioned. It's a messaging challenge for local governments imposing the property tax to explain, here's what we did, here's what it means to you, and here's what's being using, used for. Some of that is tax policy. Some of that ends up being sort of government administration and, you know, customer relationship building. So it's, you know, it's complicated stuff, but important.
0: It is complicated and important. So, Michael, I guess the the ultimate takeaway here, we've walked through the different types of taxes, the theories behind them, maybe ways that we can make things easier to understand, more transparent, and, and ways that people can hopefully hate the property tax less than they do. Is that ultimately, though, where we are? Like we said earlier, death and taxes, you're never going to win. Someone's always going to be yelling about something.
1: I think there's some degree of that. And that's, I mean, that's a natural tension in the provision of public services. And that's what you're elected to do that's I mean that's among the jobs that you take on as a public servant is making decisions on the big picture the the role of government and the breadth of services that you're going to provide so I, I think that's fair game for decision makers being held accountable for that sort of stuff the The nitty gritty of how to do it with this source or that source is complicated interesting, important, and all that stuff. But I don't know, if we if we pull back to our, our threshold question, why do people hate the property tax? I think the source of it all, separate from the level of government and whether taxes are too high and so forth, but the, the core issue there is it's not connected to an immediate transaction, and people feel like there's an off-ramp when there is. And absent that off-ramp, it just makes this tax more uncomfortable for taxpayers, and it, it makes them itchy, whether we like it or not.
0: All right, so we'll leave it there. I think that was a, a decent walkthrough. Hopefully, we can make some progress and continue to chip away. But for now, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canali signing off, and we will talk to you soon.